Talk, episode 35, interview of Michael Dooley. Hello and welcome to Tune and Talk, your rendezvous for animation interviews straight from the animation industry, or any other topic that perks my interest. I am your host, Whitney Grace, and thank you again for your patience with this unexpected hiatus. Some things happened uh, that I did not quite expect, and I have been dealing with it. And The rest of the world, well, we're also dealing with coronavirus right now. I am currently in self-quarantine to protect my health as well as those of my family and those I love and care about. And I hope all of you are doing the same so that we can get out of this pandemic quicker, healthier, and hopefully with a cure. But as for the other extenuating circumstances that were actually quite excruciating, What I have experienced in the past and what I have told you about is that I am an individual on the autistic spectrum. Formally, I would have been diagnosed with Asperger's. However, I was misdiagnosed for quite a long time and that really effed up my brain. And it is my speculation based off my research as well as the science I have learned from my therapist. Is that one of the reasons I probably became autistic and it wasn't through vaccines. I was showing traits of autism as an infant before it is medically advised to even give child, children and babies vaccines. So I am not a product of vaccine autism, which is not a thing at all. And I am living proof of that. But my family, particularly on one of my parents' sides, was a victim of abuse. And my parent is still reeling with that today, particularly in the form of anxiety and depression, of which I inherited the depression, a chemical imbalance, which is not fun at all. However, I can tell you, I cope with it daily, and I'm doing pretty well, according to my therapist, doctors, and friends. But you still deal with a lot of the pain on a daily basis, and sometimes it's not necessarily for me that it's hard to get up and get going. I don't really have that problem. My problem is is I don't necessarily want to do work. And yes, I that is procrastination but at the same time it's only wanting to consume and watch and kind of exist and not have to work but if I'm ever going to become the writer and creator I want I have to fight that every single day and I I took that unexpected hiatus because the main relative who was responsible for my parents' abuse passed. This individual was not a good person, and I am 
grateful that that chapter of my life has been closed as well as that of my parents and my family because we can all move on hopefully to a better mental health and as well as relationships of all of us the thing is is this person I believe was a victim of abuse themselves they were a child of an immigrant uh this person's parents were German immigrants during the early part of the 20th century, post-World War I, if I am remembering the family history correct, during the economic recession that really devastated Germany and really was the breaking ground for World War II and Nazism to spring up. People are expecting us to be in a horrible recession because of this COVID virus, well, in Germany, post-World War I, they were using wheelbarrows of money to pay for a single loaf of bread. I don't think we're going to get that bad. I actually wrote about this uh, in great detail in my book, uh, Lotta Reiniger, Pioneer Film Animation, about how she was able to make the film, uh, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, because the producer of the film had a bunch of film stock he had invested in, and... The history goes is he either couldn't sell it or he had purchased it in a deal thinking it would have been an investment or he actually was thinking about getting into movies themselves and saw Lada as a way to use the film stock up. It's The details are kind of sketchy, but either way, the movie was made from 1923 to 1926. And uh, the oldest surviving animated film is all of that. It's actually available for all of you to watch now. There's a pirated copy up on YouTube, but I suggest you order the DVD from Milestone because it supports them and it helps them bring out more animation and other great videos that have not been ever seen over here in the U.S. I'm kind of hoping to get a lot more of Lotta Reiniger's filmography over here. It's just a lot of work because a lot of people, while they are interested, they kind of aren't interested in seeing black and white silhouette animated cartoons from early to 1970s. So, but it's... A great filmography, and I'm working on it. Trust me on that. But anyway, um, there are stereotypes about Germans and being the child of a German parents on both sides. I can tell you a lot of them are true, at least from what I experienced. I mean, my parents were... Don't get me wrong, they're American, but they're very, they were very strict. They had expectations. I mean, we were never physically or mentally abused. My parents are great. They had their shortcomings. They're as human as me. But overall, um, they, <laughs> they're great. I'm not saying they're saints, but sorry, mom and dad, if you take offense of this, I love you. Um, but the discipline, the expectations that were instilled in them, by their own parents due to their, I guess, ethnic heritage, it's still there, and I can still see it in my own siblings' families today, and it's not a bad thing. 
one of the stereotypes related to Germans is they're very harsh, very critical, very regimental. At the same time, they're also, another stereotype is they're also very hardworking. They have no sense of humor. They are very much a people who like order. I have met many German individuals today, and they, when I, they ask about American stereotypes, and I tell them about German stereotypes, they're like, yes, that is so true. And I'm like, dude, what you just said about Americans is so true. So it's a cultural exchange. One thing I've learned is, um, for some reason, ethnic and national Germans are nuts about bread. And I can tell you if there's a stereotype about bread in Germans, it's true because I love bread. <laughs> Moving beyond carbohydrates. Uh, this relative's parents I don't know exactly what happened particularly in the effect of this relative's who passed this individual's father he I don't know what happened to him but I'm pretty sure he had night terrors he had a very huge ego he could be a good man at times, but he had pretty big anxiety as well as PTSD. Now this relative's mother, from everything I've heard, she was an angel, but there was more to her. I've just never been told the whole story because I think she wasn't treated. She was, don't get me wrong, she was loved, well cared for. But the relationship she had with her husband was one of, it was a male-dominated household. Uh, this relative also, I'm pretty sure, experienced a lot of yelling, a lot of anger. I don't really think there was sexual abuse, but that could have gone on. They weren't very specific about that, but I'm, it, what I have been told is there was only one isolated incident, but it didn't go much far. Not to say that any sort of sexual abuse, I'm not downplaying it, I'm just saying in this particular case, related to my relative, compared to other people. However, this relative was really effed up. And this individual damaged my parent. And by proxy, I am the aftermath. I'm an aftermath of physical, mental abuse. I'm not, I'm, and I'm not, let me be clear, I've never experienced that myself. But it's damaging in my autism. is a product of that because neurologically abuse really really does a number on your mind it screwed up my parents neurological brain and by proxy mine in utero I've never been asked if I would like to not be autistic I can assure you there are some benefits um, particularly the focus the 
enhanced parts of my brain where I have the ability to memorize as well as kind of have an encyclopedia memory of whatever I'm interested in. But there are many downsides, particularly in the social areas. And I'm just going to say it's not easy. And I wish I had been diagnosed earlier. Um, this relative, up until their death, was was verbally abusive to my parent, and it was horrible. This relative was also a huge liar, not as much as another relative of mine who was pathological, but this relative also was a hoarder. I've watched uh, about nine seasons of Hoarders, and while the show prepared me for the mess to expect, uh, emotional turmoil, it did not. And that was very hard. I am very grateful, however, that my relative was a very, I like to call them a clean hoarder. In other words, there wasn't piles and mounds of garbage on the floor that you needed to shovel up with a shovel or could sweep up with a broom. Uh, the worst we ever dealt with was uh, lots of dust. And in the garage, the garage was pretty bad. There was a mouse nest and mouse turds. But compared to some other hoarders, it was fairly hygienic. One of the things that really shocked me about going through a hoarder's house was just how mentally ill this relative was. Uh, this relative was fairly well off and had a shopping addiction. And this relative just kept buying and buying and buying up until her deathbed. The amount of money this relative spent, it was appalling. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying, um, when I say this, is that my family was poor growing up. But uh, we had hard times. And for the amount of money this... And I'm not saying this relative had the obligation to help us. However, this relative... And this relative always said that they wanted to be uh, closer with my particular family unit, but they were never willing to put in the work... individual also paid more or less people to be their friend that these were fair-weather people while we were family and it what I'm trying to get at is you know my family struggled financially at times for the amount of money my relatives spent on extraneous things particularly clothing furniture, friends who were fair weather. We could have used some of that ourselves for the necessities. And it hurts that this relative didn't think to help us like that, despite everything they said. Another thing 
that's actually in a way that's quite quite in the typical hoarder behaviors i have never seen so many freaking plastic bags in my life i believe my relative also had some type of uh, clinical ocd as well as some need to keep clean what this relative did is for instance i was going through their jewelry you know, if you have a jewelry box, you keep everything in there, you look at it, you open it, and then you store it. This relative had drawers full of jewelry, and not only that, they were all individually wrapped in plastic bags. Not only that, but clothing was put in plastic bags. Remember how I said you didn't need a shovel to go through this individual's house? Oh, no, 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 no. Let me take that back. In this person's closet, we could have used that, but... It, just for the plastic bags, but it wasn't, you know, dirty or anything. It was just probably a good quarter of an inch of plastic bags on the carpet in the closet. And I've seen plastic bags I haven't seen in decades from closed department stores, logos that are no longer in use. I mean, it was a literal time capsule of retail. And, like, shirts were in plastic bags from the dry cleaners. That makes sense. That makes sense. But then in within the shirts, and I, particularly the Joe or the jackets, they were stuffed with plastic bags so that they can retain their shape. Let's see, food. Food was, um, this person was also a food hoarder, which, that's another long story. was not the best example of how an adult should be. And in fact, in many ways, this individual is very much more like an infant their entire adult lives than an actual adult. My parent actually had to parent this relative more than... she ought to I mean I can get that some that some children need to parent their their parents when they're you know elderly and infirm but my parent was parenting long before that and 
back to the plastic bags. That was... I'm still reeling over that. Just the amount. There was um, a cupboard in this individual's bedroom, and it was full of plastic, plastic, plastic bags. I mean, uh, Greta Thunberg and other environmentalists would have been appalled. We were appalled for the amount of excess trash we found in this individual's house. And we're talking, this individual loved to travel, had the capabilities to do this. That was a very huge blessing in this person's life. They kept every single freaking AAA travel book, brochure, map, business card from every single place they ever went and it's not like I, I admit I keep um every badge from cons I go to as well as uh, theater programs from when I go see a play however I keep them neat and orderly and organized and I look at them this person never did that they were just in boxes in the garage and then all oh, the freaking postcards. We found probably about two feet worth of postcards. Um, the person also kept every bit of mail, birthday card. Not, no, not just birthday cards. Every bit of greeting cards they ever received from Christmas. I'm surprised that this person never even kept the wrapping paper from Christmas. They would have done that. Let's see. What else do we find? I found some things that um, were also quite upsetting to me. Uh, one particularly were the family heirlooms. I'm very big on learning about my family history, particularly so I can understand what led me to be autistic. And this relative was always like, oh, family history, blah, 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 blah. And they said that they had these items and I can understand you don't want to have a child, particularly one as rambunctious of myself, touch these because they're, you know, some of these items are now over 100 years old. I wouldn't let um, my nieces and nephews touch them, look at them, yes, but uh, I will show them to them when they're older. But these family heirlooms... which were so important, and I'm talking about um, photo albums, things that have been in the family pre-immigration to America, things that are part of my identity and my family's identity, part of my heritage, these things were treated like trash. We had a pile of trash in the garage that was probably about 15, 20 feet high. And we were so sick of going through crap that if I had not been as vigilant, I mean, I don't get me wrong, I was very, very sick of going through crap, but if I had not been vigilant, these things that I was particularly looking for would have been thrown away. The biggest thing are uh, my... This, uh, the biggest things are um, some family memoirs about living in Germany during the World War One and the depression, the economic repression, the, the economic recession. Photos 
of people who I'll never know the names of, but relatives. I could probably figure it out through process of elimination and family trees, but at the same time, I can't be 100% accurate. Uh, a family Bible. A book of Psalms. But, um, these things were almost thrown in the garbage bin. And then I found them. I mean, my parents' wedding album was also treated like garbage. It was in a box in the garage with but another family heirloom that was not treated as well as it should have been. And it's going to probably gross some of you listeners out, but it's actually pretty, pretty uh, interesting. I was going through the closet and I found a bake-liked, uh, a green bake-liked jewelry box. And it was pretty old. I couldn't date it, but when I opened it, it was a pretty plain piece of jewelry. But when I read the note, this was uh, my great-great-grandmother's hair. And all of you are like, ew. But let me finish. Back in the day, it was quite common and customary for relatives of the deceased to cut off locks of hair and have them turned into a mourning wreath or to have them turned into uh, pieces of jewelry. Uh, lovers and courting couples did this as well. It was a way to keep those you love close to you. And at one point, my great-grandmother's hair had been turned into this, uh, if you didn't know it was hair, it was just this lovely woven bracelet that's never been worn. But uh, that was almost thrown into the trash, too. And so now I have my great-grandmother's DNA. No, I... Well, technically, I kind of do, but I think all of the um, hair follicles have long fallen off, so I couldn't clone her. I don't think I really would want to. But it's a precious piece of family family jewelry. We, we, we don't have that. But now I do. No, I'll, I'll, you probably even were grossed out by it, but I'll probably wear this on special occasions. And, you know, it's really no different than wearing a wig or made from real human hair. Or, and actually there's this village in China, one of the, um, I think an ethnic minority in China, they actually keep the hair of their deceased uh, aunt's, sisters, mothers, grandmothers, and they turn this into like a sort of familia big wig. I mean, the hair is well cared for, it's washed, it's brushed, so it's not gross, it's just like any other wig, except it's literally the family DNA being worn on someone's head and interwoven and braided with the, the living relatives. And it's quite a lovely tradition in a way. I only say in a way because those headpieces look quite heavy. And, well, human hair is human hair. 
If you don't care for it, it is pretty gross. But when it is, you're fine. And I feel bad for everything my parent had to deal with. And I feel bad for what my relative had to go through. But the thing that separates my parent and me from this relative is my parent made the conscious decision to change and to say the buck stops here. And I made the conscious decision to say the same. I mean, you can't take mental health well, let me rephrase that. Mental health is a serious condition that is generational. And you have to take it seriously. Now, there are times when people just need to s- buck up. I'm not going to lie to that. Then there are really big times when you just need to do that. But for stuff that are like chemical imbalances, autism, PTSD... I have complex PTSD. I'm pretty sure my rel- my parent has complex PTSD too, along with their anxiety and depression and chemical imbalance, of which I inherited. I don't really have much of the anxiety, though. Thank you for my other parent for kind of balancing it out of it. But these things suck. And the more we're aware of it, the more we talk about it, the more we can spread the knowledge. Will it stop it? No, but we can make it so it's not taboo to talk about it to where it is commonplace to the point where, oh, there's more patience, kindness, and understanding between one human and another. And it's really the same message I spread and I plan on spreading with if I ever become an advocate for autism. You know, a lot of people with mental disabilities and stuff are advocating for equal treatment and everything like that, and I'm all for that. However, my biggest thing I'm advocating for is kindness, patience, and understanding, and literally, just don't be a douche, people. Autistic people, I admit, we're on our own little world. I mean, if you say, Whitney, animation, beginnings to now, go. I can talk to you for eight hours without even stopping except for bathroom breaks and water and food. And a lot of autistic people, if you say your favorite subject, go. Some people might think we're being rude, we're being oblivious, we're being just freaking weird. But neurologically, we can't help it. And if someone were kind enough to say, hey, let's talk about this a different time, or this is really fun stuff, maybe a bit later, or hey, you're kind of making other people uncomfortable, or hey, you're kind of embarrassing yourself, or some people are kind of off-put by this. Or, hey, just not right now, later. 
that can mean the world of difference for us from being a social outcast to being that weird, awkward person who spends all their time alone and is considered creepy to someone who's just a little bit misunderstood and can't read social cues. <laughs> Personally, I've been through um, uh, some intensive therapy to learn how not to do that, but I still do, particularly at conventions. <laughs> and my friends who forget that I have ASD, they're just like, okay, can you stop, please? And I'm like, oh yeah, sorry. And they're like, wow. And some of them are just so polite, they don't do anything. But for those who are, I love all of you. So that's what's been up kind of sad but it's also the closing of a door on a long long chapter that was 88 years long and I never wanted this relative to die in pain but I'm relieved that it's over and they didn't die in pain morphine so let's move on with our lives and make things better Although it's kind of hard right now with the pandemic, but this interview uh, for episode 35 is with perhaps one of the coolest behind the scenes people I have ever met. And I know that whenever I bring someone on the show, I'm always like, this is the coolest person I've ever met because literally at that time and space in my existence, they were. And, but this one um, in particular is quite impactful on on me because their names are my his name is Michael Dooley and he is a teacher at the Pasadena Art Center out in California and I've actually lectured in his class about a lot of Reiniger I think he teaches the history of design there or the history of comics and art any I, I forget which but he's a very very smart man he's also very nice he's also a member of women in animation booyah you need a great organization to join. I suggest you do that. They're very supportive. And by proxy, is also a feminist, I think. All his actions say he is. And not one of those crazy hyper-feminists who, like, hate men. No, no, no. It's more of, hey, women are cool. And I'm like, hey, guys are cool. So, partnership. And he's like, yeah. He also has a really nice cat. Beautiful little calico. And his wife has her own fabulous career in art and she is so cool and they're really cool together but he what's really cool about him other than everything else I've already told you is he's one of those guys or people who so love what he does that he can talk about it for hours and I don't think he is autism himself he's just loves it loves 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 it so when you get some guy who loves hearing and having a conversation with others who love the same thing, which was me, we go on for hours. And what's great about this conversation is, is I love hearing what he does and did, and he loves hearing what I did and I'm doing. And that's frankly one of the best feelings I've ever had in my life. Because someone who loves the same stuff you do, and they're just as excited for everything you've ever done as you are for everything they have. And yeah, I'm not going to lie, there's some envy in there, but 
I get to share in it vicariously. I mean, not my envy of them. I get to share in their experience vicariously because they're telling me about it. And that's why I love talking to people who are in this industry or anything else I like. Because I might not get to experience what they do. A lot of it has to do with my career at this point, but also has to do with my hesitancy as being an autistic woman. I take a lot of precautions to present myself in a manner which I hope is positive. But that also makes me very reserved and restrained in some ways. But when I can go all out and go full geek, autistic geek, like I did with this conversation with Michael, it is freaking awesome. So before I talk your off anymore, you have to listen to this interview with Michael Dooley. It is a bit old. We're getting through the archive. We're getting through the archive and back. Without further ado, here is the interview. Nasty, I was as a kid. <laughs> Actually, we were just talking about uh, that in, in class last night. This is being recorded on banned books, uh, week, uh-huh. and we got into a uh, discussion in uh, the, the class about banned books and the idea of listing banned books that it's like telling these kids, okay, this is what you shouldn't look at. Is just like, you know, that's candy for them. And, and it's like, uh, oh, yeah, okay, I won't look at, yeah, can I copy down all the names in those books so I make sure I don't look at them? And, and I was flashing back to to my days back in the 1950s, you know, the, the young Catholic school boy who uh, would have this, um, there, there was this paper, uh, the, the tablet that, uh, was was given out after mass every Sunday, and mm-hmm. the only part, and it was all, you know, it was all uh, Catholic propaganda. But the one thing that I'd always make sure to read was the list of of banned books that they had, <laughs> that, the, that the Catholic Legion of Decency set up. And I and I love the uh, um, I love the acronym there. It's uh, C L O D, and I got, uh, you know, and so this is how I. Uh, you know, developed an early early taste for uh, European cinema. It's like, okay, oh, wow. know, here's here's what's on the condemned list. What, watching these will will send you to hell for forever and ever. And, and suddenly <laughs> it's like, okay, where is you know where can I get hold of where is La Dolce Vita playing? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, next to the uh, Nicolini, and <laughs> there you go. And, you know what's amazing to me is, uh, I mean. I have a theory. Um, I mean, this is one thing I'm always fighting against is, you know, people are like always saying, oh, things are so much different today than they were in my time. And I refute that. I argue that statement to the nth degree. And you might disagree with me, and <laughs> we can go off on one of our tangents. And But the thing is, is, it's true. Things are different today, but at the exactly the same time, they're not. I mean, the really the thing that only changes is the culture, but human behavior does not. And one thing I use to illustrate this is there's this quote from Socrates, 
And he's like, kids today, this is not the actual quote, but he's basically saying kids today, they don't respect their elders, they're lazy, blah, 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 blah. And then Socrates said that. And I'm like, you know, it's absolutely true. The culture may change. I mean, like when you were a kid, 1950s, wholesome, you know, white, urban, suburban America. And then, I mean, not to be racist, dear listeners, but, you know, that's kind of how the zeitgeist was at the time. And then today the zeitgeist is more accepting and, you know, diverse, except, well, yeah, that's pretty much how it is, accepting diversity and just trying to be nice to people and then technology and all that other jazz. So, you know, yeah, you're, you're around, Yeah, you're around long enough and you just, you just see things, uh, you know, in different perspectives and context yeah. it's like they'd be um you know millennials didn't invent the millennial generation they didn't invent the idea of being you know privileged spoiled rats exactly. you know who feel entitled to everything it's like you know that that's been around <laughs> so oh yeah forever yeah oh no yeah. i mean look at it i mean you're a baby boomer and yep. but the, the kids who came after you are like the gen xers i mean they were called the me generation mm-hmm Mm-hmm. But you said you just grew up in the 50s. So were you a victim of Frederick Wertham's or for Dr. Frederick Wertham's Seduction of the Innocent book? Uh, I That sort of stuff was going on uh, below my radar at the time. Well, I was uh, I was born in 48, which is – and this is right around the time that, you know, that the whole uh, – you know, Senate subcommittees on juvenile delinquency were really <laughs> starting. So wow. uh, I guess I was affected by it without uh, knowing it because, mm-hmm. you know, even though I've been in um, the comics since I was age two, which would be 1950, it wasn't, you know, it was just a couple of years later that I got uh, hooked mm-hmm. on, that I discovered Mad, the, the comic, and, um, you know, which is now we're in the EC uh, territory, EC Comics territory, and it was uh, uh, one of those things where, you know, that it indirectly affected me because um, the, um, the Mad, the comic, uh, Harvey Kurtzman's Mad was like, you know, <laughs> this is a Rosetta Stone. This is like, you know, telling me everything uh, I need to know. And mm-hmm. um, so that sensibility, you know, was there. And, you know, really, uh, in, but directly, it's like I'm not a big fan of the horror comics anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, even if that was something that I stumbled across, I, I wouldn't mm-hmm. have um, wouldn't have really minded because it's just not that. You know, I was just really into the, the humor mm-hmm. and sat, satire uh, mm-hmm. aspect of comics at that time. I mean, you know, come on, I was seven years old, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or five years. Oh, old. yeah. Anyway, around that. So, oh, yeah. but. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I def- definitely had you know a uh, a fistful of fifties. <laughs> oh yeah, I've uh, I was staying at an Airbnb, and the guest room I was staying at had a display of old vintage books, you know, with the pulps, and some of them were from Mad, and I was reading a few of these, and they were they're they're pretty funny and i was thinking about i mean they're very tame compared to some of the more lewd and derisive humor you get these days but comparatively speaking my dogs and my production crew in the background voicing their opinion about the sound but 
comparatively speaking, they were very, very crude for the time. Very, very crude? You know, like uh, defy authority, be mean to be a little rude to your parents, you know, just, you know, defy authority, anarchy kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, the anarchy aspect of it, it's like, you know, just about uh, everybody credits uh, Harvey Kurtzman for the birth of the uh, underground comics. I mean, it was all those people, you know, and uh, Art Spiegelman and Robert Crumb uh, mm-hmm. talked, you know, directly about how there was that, uh, man, this is back in his comic book days before it, um, mm-hmm. before it became a magazine, and mm-hmm. they... They both happened to specifically cite there was a mad comic book uh, that uh, had the artist uh, Basil Wolverton on the cover, and it was a parody of Life magazine. <laughs> and it was one of those things where when each of them in, you know, New, New York or Cleveland uh, saw that particular cover, it was, you know, that was their mind-blowing moment. And, yeah, just that, that whole, you know, infusion of, of anarchy and and satire and, you know, being sacrilegious and, and the rest of it uh, uh, was was born. And then, you know, recent, you know, so much so much else of the underground culture. And, you know, for that matter, even, uh, you know, you can even see the influence in films uh, like Airplane, the Zucker mm-hmm. brother, the Zucker Abrams and and even um, what what's happening uh, today with the uh, with the shows with the whole, you know, uh, Colbert and uh, Seth Meyers mm-hmm. and, and, the re- and the rest of it, you know, that's uh, that's all fairly easily traced back to those uh, to those early anar- uh, anarchic uh, mad comics. So and I, and I was part of that. Yeah, I was part of that. Hmm? How are you? Well, yeah. I mean, what I love to say is these underground mad comics, I mean, again, you look at the zeitgeist. 50s, four, I mean, the 40s was World War II, and the people like to, I mean, the greatest generation, in my opinion, I think they like to propose that everyone was very patriotic and, you know, fighting the Nazis, but in actuality, America didn't want to go to war, and it only became really patriotic and all for one, one for all was when Pearl Harbor happened. Mm. And then, still there was that. that, But then, I like to think of the mad comics and all this, you know, the comic C-O-M-I-X. All this underground Mm. stuff was really a true expression of how America was because I like to think the, you know, the the man and then the, I don't know, the other men were just, trying to whitewash over America, like, oh, this is how we really are, wholesome, but the comics was the true expression, because it was realism and gritty, and beneath all this whitewashing, we're, this is life, this isn't how life really was, this is how life really was, through the expression of mad comics. And and you can see that, too, from, you know, like, you're talking about the uh, World War II and the uh you know, early and mid 1940s, it's, it's, you know, the after effects of that was, you know, the men, uh, came home and, you know, hey, it's time, you know, to shoe Rosie the Riveter and, and you know, and all those other women, you know, back, uh, 
in the kitchen to be, you know, barefoot and pregnant, like, uh, as the, as God intended. And so uh-huh. the 1950s, you know, just became so conservative, you know, that whole Eisenhower, uh, Eisenhower Nixon era that, uh, uh-huh. and there was just such suppression then and, and oppression. It's, yeah, there was, there was all sorts of rebellion. There were, you know, suddenly, uh, teenagers became a factor because they were, uh, listening to, uh, Rock and roll music, which was mm-hmm. coming out of you know both both country and R and B and that that sort of thing, and uh, so yeah, just so many aspects of uh, popular culture, the the comics, the music were reacting to mm-hmm. you know, just that 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 uh, that lily white uh, suburbia, that you know Levittown mentality, and it's just like that, that whole let me out of here <laughs> attitude. Yeah, I- well, you know they they connected with that when when you know Kirschman you know, was expressing himself like that. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, it was It really this wholesome atmosphere never existed. The Easy Rider, the James Dean, Rebel Without a Cause. I mean, truly, teen angst really came into play after World War II. Yeah, it was uh, the... Uh, yeah, the 19, yeah, post world, post war was the invention of juvenile delinquency. <laughs> it was, you know, I mean, which gets back to, uh, Wortham. This is that whole thing about, you know, let, let's find a, a scapegoat. I mean, you know, here are these, you know, here are these teenagers and, and they're, they're not behaving like, you know, the teen, like, you know, <laughs> like it was back in my day. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you talk about movies, you know, there was the, um, you know the classic um, uh, movie with Marlon Brando as the uh, you know the motorcycle guy in uh-huh. in the wild one where it's uh, you know uh, hey Johnny what are you rebelling against uh, what do you got you know that that's just kind of you know you know fifties fury and yeah you know that the the, uh, uh, the, the James Dean uh, movies and, you know so that's that's part of it. Part of that mm-hmm. whole re- reaction, it's, it's like you know, l- let's not blame this this you know, buttoned up conservative, uh, uh, oppressive you know, corporation wor- <laughs> worshiping uh, uh, culture. Let's uh, you know, let it, it it must be it must be that music. It must be um, Little Richard and Chuck Berry, right? You know, <laughs> you know? jungle music. That jungle, jungle music, yes. That jungle Let's, music be corrupting our kids. That's right. Yeah, you know, we're gonna gonna break these records and you know gonna put them, you know, the comics on bonfires and and that sort of thing and and that'll solve everything. And you know, and and again, like you say, it, it comes around again. You know, with uh, you know, you you, you see it in uh, you know music in like you know the the late sixties and all. You had Tipper Gore. Uh, uh, against Frank Zappa, you know, in terms of, well, his music is, you know, tur- turning everybody crazy. And, and, you know, if it's not that, it's the video games are corrupting, uh-huh. you know, so it's, it's just this ongoing scapegoating that, that happens and oh. which kind of keeps with the theme that we started with that whole idea of, of, you know, here it comes again in a different form, you, oh, know, yeah. to, you know, for the culture. You know, so, before you were born, and in the when was that thing invented? Uh, probably seventeen, probably sixteen, seventeen hundreds. A little thing called the novel <gasps> came 
Can you believe that? <laughs> that was corrupting the youth because all oh, this mass publication of with this Gutenberg's press and all these novels, 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 novels. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we we should just stick with, you know, Gutenberg and his Bible. You know, that's all we need. You know, that that, that tells us what we need. That tells we, that tells us what we need to know. <laughs> well, you know, it's Gutenberg. Gutenberg is, you know what they're doing with the novel of these Bibles? They're putting it in vernacular English and vernacular French and vernacular Dutch and vernacular German. The Bible should only be in God's Latin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So and, you said, uh, yeah. Uh, I was just, I was just gonna, uh, just gonna say, <laughs> just go off on a tangent for a moment. There was, you know, one of the other things about, uh, uh, Gutenberg, wa- and kind of tying in with what we were talking mm-hmm. about religion was, uh, uh, in a way the Catholic Church was a, uh, was a sponsor of Gutenberg in the sense that he was making, uh, money, uh, by, by basically printing, uh, material for, uh, for the Pope. Uh, mm-hmm. Like letters, letters of indulgence, which uh, oh, yeah. basically, yeah, ba- basically meant, you know, at the time, if if you contribute, you know, basically, it was like if you contribute enough to the the church, then uh, you will get time off from purgatory, and we will give you, you will give you documents that that prove that, that authorize it, you know, something to bring along after you die, so you can, you know, at the pearly gate show St. Peter, it's like. You know, I don't have to spend that much time in purgatory because I got this, these letters of indulgence that were, you know, that were printed, you know, uh, by Gutenberg. And, uh-huh. uh, so, uh, but, but again, it's like, um, I mean, what, what's happening now? It, uh, and when I tell the students about this, they don't believe it and I have to show them the documentation. It was like five years ago, the Pope was offering uh, indulgences for anybody who would follow him on Twitter. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. I did not know that. Uh, yeah, I think it was around 2013. It's like, holy anyway. cow. I want to. Yeah, <laughs> you know what would be really cool is like the ultimate Catholic collector's item would be like some of those original indulgence letters that Gutenberg printed out. Like, oh, look. Can you, yeah, I can imagine that at a, some sort of Catholic fan convention. Buy <laughs> original indulgence letters from sixteen so and so, and we're not dissing anyone from the Catholic religion. We're just—I mean, my family's Catholic all the way back, so it's. Oh, I—I—I've I, been dissing the Catholic religion, so oh. uh, Father, forgive me. <laughs> no, I—I I think we're just—you know—it's just history. We're just commenting on facts, and so you know, whatever. So you said you were involved in the comics underground. Tell me about that. Uh, let's see. Well, uh, hmm. I guess in in a way, uh, secondhand. I mean, it was back in those days. Um, you know, Art, Art Spiegelman was you know uh, living in Brooklyn, and it was like pe- people knew people. I was going to Pratt Institute from. You know, we're talking 1965 to 1970, and um, you know he was at school of visual art. You know, and, and there was mm-hmm. kind of w- one degree of separation from uh, everybody and everything back then. You know, even pre-internet, there was this there was this pipeline where where people were able to uh, you know, communicate and, and get in touch. And, and yeah, the uh, the underground comics was just like 
another manifestation of the culture, like the mm-hmm. uh, uh, the psychedelic music and uh, the rest of it. So, and uh, I had my uh, references. I mean, certainly uh, Art Spiegelman, and uh, and which you know, who again, that that's coming out of those uh, Kurtzman uh, roots. You know, that there were uh, there were also um, underground comics that that uh like didn't get as much recognition but were still uh, important enough for me like um uh Dan O'Neill and the Air Pirates mm-hmm. uh they were uh they were doing underground comics of a different sort they weren't uh cuz a lot of that stuff was just like uh let's put out comics that go down and and break all the rules from the comics code authority and mm-hmm. you know do something that'll that'll give Fred Wortham a heart attack and and so it was you know a lot of uh uh fabulous freak brothers uh you know dope uh, uh jokes and uh you know uh, sexual liberation and you know that to me was had its <laughs> and its limitations, and the thing about the air pirates was that they were kind of they, for me they were more connected with that Harvey Kurtzman parody thing because basically they went after Walt Disney. I they know, had, I know, uh, I've seen it. Yeah. It's horrible, but so, so <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> they they were uh, yeah they you know they would they would have uh, you know it, it, a parody of the Dell Comics. Uh, Walt Disney's comics and stories, except uh-huh. in this case, the Air Pirates comics and stories, they would uh, show, you know, Mickey Mouse um, on this, you know, small aircraft. It's kind of one-seater uh, plane where, you know, he, he was flying around with a, uh, you know, with a bag of heroin, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, crossing the border and things like that. So, it was, mm-hmm. he, you know, they were, <laughs> they were doing drugs uh, yeah. <laughs> in their way. And, uh, you know, but, but making it more something, you know, that I can relate to that whole, you know, having, having been part of that, uh, you know, that, that Disney, uh, whitewashing. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I mean, whitewashing of, um, j- just that whole uh, idea that, um, uh, Disney made his fortune by, uh, grabbing public domain material like all those uh Grimm's fairy tales and, mm-hmm. and fables and the rest of it and watering it down for everybody and so that it became acceptable and, and you know just basically homogenized so that was that was part of my 50s up upbringing you know and you know then you go back and you actually you know look at, at and read these 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 fairy tales and you know my god like you say it was it it was like my my god the bible you know my you know there there are these just nightmarish uh, scenario Gustave Doré uh illustrations of of the you know the uh the the wolf actually devouring grandma and uh, and and so then uh, the the air pirates was just you know ridiculing so much of that uh, that attitude that uh um, you know, I really just uh, uh, love those people. You know, Shari Flanagan and and Bobby London, who uh, is uh, he's got a new uh, uh, book coming out that's actually a collection of his uh, Dirty Duck stories. And when he mm-hmm. does, he's going to be one of the guests. We've talked about him coming to speak uh, with my class, and uh, so he can uh, he can hawk his book as, as well. 
So, uh, well, yeah, you have so to come on my show. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, um, yeah, do, uh, do, I mean, that's, uh, that's part of, uh, definitely what I like to expose my, uh, students in my, uh, uh, in my comics animation design history classes is all the stuff that, mm-hmm. uh, is offbeat that they might not, uh, know about. You know, it's like they, you know, they will, uh, they will know about, um, you know, uh, Tezuka. <laughs> they will know about, oh. uh, Jack Kirby and, but, you know, let's push it, you know, let's kind of talk about the stuff that they don't know. Otherwise, I'm not doing my job. So that's, uh, you know, that's why I go and I get, you know, expert guest speakers to introduce them to, you know, Lottie Reidegger. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. People don't, I mean, you're doing a fantastic job by introducing these people to, by introducing your students to these people. But what people well, don't you did realize a fanta- <laughs> you did a fantastic job uh, introducing Lonnie to them. So, okay, anyway, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, you're, you're fine. Fun. I don't mind the compliment, but I was just complimenting <laughs> you in turn because people don't realize just how much of our history and then at the same is incorrect, but at the same time, they don't know how much it is influenced by these historical footnotes and or – uh, one or two sentence people. I mean, that's the great thing about Wikipedia is these people can finally come to light, like lot, like Lotta Reiniger. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you love uh, all, all the times that you hear Disney being credited for the stuff that she had come up with, like you know, a decade uh-huh. before and that sort of thing. Exactly. Right? But, yeah, that's and, got smoke coming out of your ears, right? <laughs> anyway. Really. I'm a Disney fan through and through, and Disney Disney made the animation more – he made it more commercial, more mass-produced. And let's talk about a tangent on a tangent. She was was using an old-fashioned art in a new way. He he was using a brand-new art in a brand-new way. I'll just leave mm-hmm. it at that. And if you want to read more, people, you can check out my book, Lotta Reiniger, Pioneer Film Animation, available to you from McFarlane Books. Moving on. What exactly... <laughs> wherever, wherever, wherever great five uh, books are sold. Uh, yeah, biographies of, of animator, animators that are <laughs> worth your attention are sold. Exactly. Uh, so, so, yeah. Mr. Dooley, what exactly were you doing in the comics underground scene? Were you a writer? Were you an artist? Were you a reporter? Or were you just that cool dude <laughs> hanging out in the corner selling, you know, stuff we can't mention? <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, <clears throat> none of the above. I was going to school uh, at the time. I was at uh, uh, Pratt Institute getting my design uh, education, and uh, I wasn't uh, – involved in the um I, I mean it was i was involved in the uh underground comics scene in in terms of that being part of the culture that was that was going on there i mean we're talking about uh pratt in brooklyn from 1965 to 1970 which was uh when i was there and so i was absorbing uh and uh and being influenced by all this um material and mm-hmm. uh you know in terms of uh I I yeah wasn't selling either either uh, dope or uh, or 
comics with an X on, on street corners. You know, I, mm-hmm. I know there's that, that story, you know, the, the, uh, the Bob Crumb story about how he was, uh, he and his first wife, Dana, were, were selling their, uh, Zap comics out of the, uh, uh baby carriage and hate, uh, Ashbury. But, uh, I was, I was a consumer. I was a consumer of, of, uh, of that, uh, you know, in, ter- in terms of, you know, going to, uh, <laughs> going to head shops for, you know, I'm only, I'm only going there for the literature, you know, <laughs> like the playboy, I'm just right. reading it for the article. Uh, and, uh, and, and a lot of it, um, was, uh, it was, it was all related to and, and talking with the, uh, communicating with, with, uh, the other things that were going on. There were the, um, there were the demonstrations, you know, there was seeing the folk singer Phil Oaks at, uh, 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 give, giving free, you know, just setting up and doing a free, uh, concert performance in, in Central Park at a non, uh, authorized, uh, venue. And there were, the, there were the, uh, the protests. I was, uh, uh, it, it's just not as interesting, but I was more on the, on the radical spectrum than, uh, than, than the hippie. You know, there were the, there were the people who made it a habit to go to love ends and mm-hmm. my habit was more like uh you know uh marching through um uh Manhattan as uh, uh in order to go see Martin Luther King speak at the um at the United Nations and um you know getting to um getting to talk <clears throat> excuse me getting some you know first hand information about the Vietnam War from the uh the v- the VW the Vietnam Veterans Against the War and mm-hmm. you know that was that was uh, so enlightening for me, and it uh, you know it, it just all fueled that that part of the culture. You know, to be able to hear these these firsthand accounts of what was happening over there, and uh, you know, which which tied in with there there was there there was some political stuff uh, going on in. Uh, the underground comics like uh, Spain Rodriguez is a good example of that. I'm actually working on uh, an article uh, about a uh, biography of uh, Spain that uh, uh, Fanographics put out that uh, uh, I hope, hope to get to soon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was more, you know, like with, with Trash Man of the Third International, he was more like, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, screw the system. Uh, he had this trash man character that was basically oh, yeah. you know kind of, you know fighting for uh the uh the the revolution and you know more of a uh socialist aspect he did a um a graphic biography of che guevara so things mm-hmm. like that but he was the exception rather than than mm-hmm. the rules so uh yeah for me a lot of you know being able to see uh gilbert sheldon's uh creek brothers for me it was you know, so much of the same. It's like I didn't have to read that much to be able to say I got it. So again, mm-hmm. I was I was more interested in the um, I guess the tangents rather than the mainstream of underground comics, the anti-mainstream <laughs> comics. Uh, so uh, and uh, so yeah, I was I, I was uh, about getting educated in you know not only at school from the design sense but just also in the world i mean the the, the late 1960s i mean you can you know uh all these 
all these annoying uh, baby boomers, you know, just talk to you. Oh, back in my day, you know, back in, you know, late yeah. 1960s, you know, that was that was the greatest, and this stuff never happened, you know, like like it did uh, before. But you know, but for me, it was, you know, hey, this was these were my formative years, and I would, uh, you know, so I'd be reading the comics, and I'd be uh, uh, going to uh, the concerts at the Fillmore and the Electric Circus. I'd be, oh wow, uh, going going to the pro. Uh, Oh wow! I remember that expression from the sixties, right? <laughs> and, Peace, man. And and yeah, and, and just you know, being able to uh, and the um, underground film uh, as well, being being able to you know uh, get get exposed to uh, that whole culture, that whole um, uh, underground film scene, you know, mm-hmm. that was led by in New York, led by uh, Jonas Makis, who you know introduced. So many underground uh, filmmakers and animators, uh, you know, to me at that at that time, that was a, that was a whole um, big part of the life too. So um, yeah, I was into a lot and just like enjoying seeing how everything connected. Uh, mm-hmm. th- that that sort of thing. It's like uh, we are all one, man. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, the oneness. I mean, yeah, it was there. And then the oneness depends on. Uh, you know, listeners, I try to keep this podcast sanitary, but the thing is that oneness really intensified with how much drugs were in your system. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you know, and and that's something I talk about. You know, because in addition to my uh, uh, comics and animation history mm-hmm. class, I I also teach a um, uh, design history class at uh, at LMU. And mm-hmm. Loyola, Loyola Marymount University, Westside, uh, LA. And, uh, and, and so when I get to, uh, when I get to the 1960s, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now doing history from a, uh, firsthand perspective when I get into, you know, once, once I hit the 50s and 60s, it's, yeah. it's like, you know, now I'm, you know, eyewitness to the stuff that, you know, you, you young whippersnappers are, you know, reading about, you know, that happened, uh, uh, 50 and, uh, Years ago, and, and yeah, that gets involved with the uh, that that whole uh, culture of the psychedelic music uh, music posters, which you know again connects with uh, Bill Graham's Fillmore, and you know, and I show uh, iconic album covers um, like the uh, the Grateful Dead uh, album cover uh, designed by uh, Rick Griffin, uh, where it, it it basically is this you know, very swirly type that, mm-hmm. that, that you know, that, that you got to spend quality time with. You got to just, you know, choke up and stare at it for a while. But it's one of those things that uh, just as a, as a way of showing uh, what the sensibility was all about. It's like it, basically the, the, the album was a two word title. And this is something you can do like a Google image search to actually uh, see it. And, and it was uh, the, the word on the top was American. And the, the the word on the bottom of the album, uh, again, all done in swirly, you know, and it takes you time to uh, reinterpret it, uh, to interpret it. And it actually either said beauty or reality. So it was like the <laughs> album cover was was American beauty. But it's like if you looked at that word long enough, and it's pretty much exactly what I do in class, I don't tell them. It's like, um, you know, what, what do you see there? You know, and they... They take a couple of beats, and then somebody says American Beauty, and then I'm going, 
uh, anything else, anyone else, and, you know, give, give them more time. And that's part of that whole, you know, that, that, um, acid experience, that whole, uh, mm-hmm. transformative psychedelic drugs being able to, uh, show that, you know, that there's a, uh, another reality, uh, that, um, you know, that the, the squares aren't privy to, you know, mm-hmm. it's like if you, you know, if you have these uh, Tim Leary transcended experience, you can see another beauty that the squares, uh, you know, just just totally uh, miss another uh, another reality, you know, that, that kind of reality, which, you know, again, goes back to, you know, uh, Aldous Huxley and Doors of Perception, which goes back to William Blake. And so, again, it's it's nothing new. It's just, you know, that the. Uh, you know the chemicals have changed. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so, so you, uh, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Next no, I was question. Just, I was just about to say, you were in school and you got to experience this great view of what was then, uh, you know, modern culture, public uh, current events. What did you use your art for? What did you, who did you become? in relation to comics, art, and all this fantastic stuff. What did you decide to make with your career? That's a, that's a great question. And, uh, and this actually, um, I, I pretty much put my finger on my uh, art career to um, uh, ni- uh, 1955 when I was mm-hmm. seven years old. And, uh, and, like uh, Crum and Spiegelman, I saw a Kurtzman Mad cover, but it wasn't the Wolverton Life um, cover. It was, you know, as I say, I'd been reading comics, you know, the uh, uh, little uh, Lulu and uh, and such, the, the the sanitized comics, and then just going to the to the uh, to the store uh, where they had, you know, the spinner racks of, of comics. Uh, I saw this this one uh, mad that was basically the the cover was uh, let's see I believe it was 22 uh, that actually looked like the classified ads on the inside of the comic and it was the cover and it was one of those things where if you actually you have to kind of look hard enough and in you know in teeny type at the very top was uh, you know the mass that you know there was mad. Uh, but it was, it was mostly, it was like 90%, 95% parodying, uh, those, uh, Smith and Johnson, uh, classified ads on the inside that would, that would sell you, um, x-ray specs and, you know, fake, uh, uh, mm-hmm. waste and, and, you know, learn, learn how to hypnotize people and, and, you know, buy, uh, authentic looking guns and things like that. And it was just this, this, uh, this takeoff that it was one of those things where, you know, this, this, <laughs> which one of these things does not belong to all the other? And it, and it had such an impact on me in, 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 again, in terms, this was what first attracted me to, um, uh, to MAD, which again, you know, you can do the, the, um, uh, the through line, it's like bringing this home and reading it and finding inside, you know, it's like the first story on, on page one was this, um, uh, was this, uh, uh, eight, uh, summary page, uh, Popeye, uh, parody that also happened to parody, uh, a bunch of other, um, yeah, 
comics, uh, you know, uh, Superman and Tarzan and uh, Little Abner and that, and that sort of thing. And so this was uh, th this was my life uh, changing experience. And you know, I didn't know what you know design was. You know, it was uh, and you know didn't even really take into consideration that uh, that much that. Yeah, there was actually, you know, there were hands <laughs> behind this art. You know, there was John Stanley, you know, actually uh, drawing Little Lulu, and it, it was it was one of those things where it's like, okay, don't just read this stuff. Pay attention to there's, you know, there are minds behind this stuff. There are people who come up with these ideas. There are people who write them and then and then draw them. And it was just, you know, one of those things like, you know, even at seven years old, without knowing the words, it's like. Whatever this is, I want to get in on this action, and uh, and so that just had me uh, doing all sorts of uh, drawings, just uh, just as a passion that that just continued, and it and it really uh, it was one of those you know the the guys who just even in grade school you're 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 doodling on your algebra book and in, in the margins and that sort of thing, and you're you know you're creating flip books where you uh, you know can you do like a, a cartoon on each page and you flip the page and woo, you know, I'm animating in, in class instead of paying attention to my geography lesson. <laughs> and that for <laughs> me was, you know, just so much more pleasurable that which, you know, the next step then was, uh, I mean, you know, the school we're talking about, uh, uh, St. Fidelis school, which no longer exists, but it wasn't in, in uh, Queens, New York. And, uh, and then the high school, which was also Catholic high school, Holy Cross, uh, that was that was one of those things where um, I actually um, uh, there were uh, uh, Dominican brothers and uh, lay teachers uh, in there, and you know this was back in the era of the era and era of uh, of corporal punishment, where that was you know pretty much commonly accepted, mm -hmm. and so. Uh, so there I am, uh, early 1960s, uh, sitting in um, in history class, uh, uh, of all things. <laughs> I used to hate history teachers. Now I are one. And, uh, and, and, <laughs> but you're and a cool so, one. You so, are <laughs> a product of your generation. And let me oh, say this. On. You know how... I mean, your parents, and then the grandparents, and Frederick Wirth and people, and then uh, what's the name of the guy who, you know, the Reds, communist, M M McCarthy? Joseph McCarthy, yes. Yeah, that's it. Senator, Senator McCarthy, yeah. yes. Are you then, now, or have you ever been? Yeah, well, and then here's the thing, is all these people were saying, oh, this stuff is corrupting our youth, it's bad, blah, 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 but you were kids then. You have grown up. I mean, like you said earlier, you guys are now the grandparents, but you were the test generation for basically what we have now. And frankly, rock and roll, the counterculture, um, comics, these things, because they were forcing open the conservative, suffocating, oh, we can't talk about that. It's, you know, it's, a family issue, you know, stuff like teenage sex, uh, questioning God, uh, you know, how anti-American, things that went against the grain. Because you were forcing this stuff out in the open, you guys became healthier people because bottling all that stuff up is not healthy. And mm -hmm. you guys still had, I mean, you guys as in 
you, your generation. I'm, I'm not saying you as an individual. I'm just saying you in reference because you are part of that generation. I mean, you guys still have things that were taboo, but when your children became, you know, adults, teenagers, you know, that, those darn kids, when the, your kids became those darn kids and they started testing you, they, they made it bigger. And then when they became parents and thus you became grandparents, those kids are now, well, they're us, they're me. <laughs> We've opened the door a whole lot wider. And then our children, which I can't still believe my generation has kids, um, I mean, I guess that shows you where my <laughs> mind is. Is We're opening the door. We're making things. I think as bad as people say this stuff is, we're letting it out. We're exposing it. We're making it come to light. We're I think the biggest and the best end result of all this, you know, is we're making things healthier by talking about it, by making things that shouldn't make people feel ashamed out so that, yeah, they're being normalized, but it's becoming healthier. We're becoming healthier mentally, which is something that is fantastic, I think. Yeah, and uh, it's one of those things where, you know, again, you know, part of the whole idea now of being a teenager is, you know, you have to rebel. Either that or, you know, you're just, <laughs> you're, you're going to kill yourself. Yeah, you, you just have, you just have to make that separation from, uh, you know, from authority figures such as your your parents, and 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 so it's like, but it's it's something that you go through. It's part of the process, and so uh, so okay, here I was in my teens hanging out uh, with. Uh, with hippies and radicals, and so, and then, and, and then I see um, my son uh, going through uh, his uh, uh, teen years in the 1980s. He was a yuppie. <laughs> oh, you, <laughs> and, you, know, you had a yuppie was, kid. Was, wow. He was, yeah. It was like you know, he wasn't you know. Instead of the you know the uh, the the Fillmore, he was hanging around at the mall. But, you know, again, it was one of those things that, you know, you just kind of, you, you take it on faith that, you know, that, 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 you know, that, that this too shall pass and he'll be better for it. So what it is, is, you know, he, he basically, uh, you know, I see so, you know, so much of, um, my, myself and my values and the rest of it, you know, so strongly in, uh, him. And he has the advantage, though, of, you know, having gone through the, the yuppie phase, of being able to get jobs that make a whole lot more money than I do. So it was like he, you know, basically he, you know, I, I can see, you know, myself in him, you know, plus, you know with the added feature of it is he's, you know, he's so much more uh, savvy about, uh, you know, uh, making a good living, uh, you know, for himself and his, and his wife and, and, uh, and my two grandsons and, uh, you know, which is just, uh, to me is is delightful. So there was, you know, that was his teenage years. Oh, and um, and, and speaking of teenage years, just get back to uh, to a tan uh, to something we uh, <laughs> that we tangented off of uh, was the, um, the the history uh, class. The history teacher in uh, mm-hmm. at uh, Holy Holy Cross High. So um, um, it, it, it was a lay teacher, and mm-hmm. uh, he was he was known for um, you know basically you know. Uh, Throwing books at kids and throwing up, throwing them <laughs> up against the wall and things like that. And so um, I was, um, you know, he, he was talking 
And I, I was not taking notes like everybody else, but I had my pen in my hand. And again, I was just like, you know, doodling all over the, the books. And I see that he spots me. It's like, you know, uh, you know, I was, I was sitting behind somebody, but still he could see from my hand gesture that no, this, this person isn't linear in his writing. <laughs> you know, he's doing these swirls and such. And so he comes over to me and I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm about to get it beaten out of me and, you know, thinking for sure that, uh, you know, he, he was, he was going to whatever, uh, he, he wanted me up in front of the class and I thought, mm-hmm. it was, you know, he, he didn't yank my, uh, ear, but what, what he did was he, he got me up, uh, in front of everybody else in, in the history class and, um, and he, uh, he just started talking and, and he's saying, you know, some people go through their entire lives without uh, realizing uh, what they want to do with themselves for for a career. And mm-hmm. Mr. Do- Mr. Dooley here is very lucky in that he's already found his career uh, with art. You know, he's doing these these drawings. He's you know these very impressive, uh, wonderful drawings. And and I'm going. Wait a minute. What I a uh, career job uh, uh maybe yeah okay and 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 it just you know it, it was one of those uh, again you where i can you know pinpoint a time where things just started turning around and like for the rest of the class uh he pretty much threw out the you know the history lesson and he he handed me you know some chalk and i on the chalkboard i just i just started uh i just started doing my my cartoons and you know, people would, you know, the, the other students would say, you know, whatever, hey, draw Dick Tracy. <laughs> and I do my little parody drawing of, of, you know, Dick Tracy. And, and, and it was like, you know, there I was, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, doing something I had done, you know, solitary for the past, um, you know, decade, uh, or so. There I was doing it in, in, in front of a, a, a class and, and having their attention. So it was like, you know, that, that's what got me hooked. That was my, uh, uh, that was my <laughs> non, uh, chemical drug experience that, uh, wow. you know, had a turning point in my, in my life. And so, yeah, then, uh, yeah, so I wound up at, uh, at Pratt and, uh, and getting involved in, in design work and, and, just tying uh, my uh, my learning, my art and design, uh, tra- professional art and design training with, and just incorporating that with um, everything else that was going on in the in, in culture and politics at the at the time. And uh, yeah, it's one of those things that uh, you know I I usually I can't go through a day without <laughs> you know, realizing you know being able to see me doing things that. Uh, that I realized, okay, I remember doing that. You know, it was in, you know, it was in my, you know, when I was a kid, when I was in my teens and twenties, and, and that, that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, it, it, um, in, in my mind, I'm, I'm recounting my own, uh, my own history. <laughs> so, so does, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I okay, was, good. Um, what did you use? I mean, did you become an artist, or did you become like a graphic designer, or what did you do? I became a, a graphic designer, and it's interesting too uh, because uh, uh, again, it's it's one of those things that make more sense in retrospect as to mm-hmm. why I am where where I am. It's like 
there, I have a great appreciation of artists who are artists in the purest sense. It's like they mm-hmm. have to, you know, follow their muse and, and, and do what they do, you know, artists, photographers and that sort of thing who are photographing, say, uh, not for, uh, you know, mag, fashion magazines, but, uh, you know, street photography that gets shown in galleries and, and museums and they're motivated by that. I was a photographer for a while, but it was, Sweet. um, it was on, you know, it was like, um, I needed an assignment. It's like, you know, for me, my first job, uh, I was doing photography to kind of, uh, uh, <laughs> being able to, uh, uh, earn en- enough to be able to pay my, uh, rent, uh, when I was going to Pratt. And, uh, and I developed a portfolio actually starting out as a photographer. My first job out of school was, uh, they hired me in New York to go down to, uh, photograph the Johnny Cash show in Nashville. Wow. So I was doing, I was doing, you know, I was doing, taking promo pictures for them while, you know, during rehearsals and, and the rest of it. And, um, and then after that, um, I became a designer for, for newspapers. But for me, it was always like, you know, uh, what's the creative brief? Give me a problem to solve. And that's what I'm most comfortable with. And I just so admire somebody who could just go and, you know, do what they do because they can do it. Um, but I'm doing it because I, I just love solving problems and I can kind of, uh, and again, uh, to trace that back to, I don't know how, you know, personally you want me to go in this, in this interview, but whatever you feel like comfortable that, with that, uh, that time when I was seven years old and, and discovered Kurtzman, you know, again, every, everything is related. It was also um, uh, coincidentally and, and only retrospectively clear that at that same time that, you know, I was falling in love with that uh, mad comics aesthetic uh, was actually a time um, when um, my parents were getting divorced and my father was, was leaving. So in a sense, uh, Harvey Kurtzman became my, uh, uh, my my father uh, uh, in in his in his way, and um, and I became so it was then just you know uh, myself, my mother, and my uh, younger brother who um, like uh, four and a half years uh, younger than me, and it was like my um, my mom had to work, you know, she had to get jobs, and so you know, uh, and so I had to you know I had to be you know as best as any person who starts out as seven-year-old can be, you know, I had to, uh, like, fill in the um, the role of, of parent as much as I could to help my brother's uh, upbringing. And uh, it, it was uh, one of those things, you know, it was, it was a uh, maturing process where, uh, which probably accounted for why I was more into politics than drugs <laughs> in the 1960s. <laughs> But it was, you know, it was just one of those kind of, you know, taking care of uh, of business uh, sorts of things. It's like, okay, um, here's a problem for me to solve. My mother's, you know, needing to work these full-time jobs because there wasn't any, uh, you know, child support <laughs> coming in. And that's another whole story. And, you know, and, and so it's like um, my brother and I were, were homeless. And, I, and, you know, I could see, you know, there was a problem. There was, you know, he was. You know, I, I was, <laughs> I was his age at one thing. Yeah, I was, I was two and three. Uh, and, and, you know, like you say, you remember what you were, you know, even in that short distance. And that guides you on how to, you know, relate to these people. So I was just going with, 
you know, remembering what I was like, <laughs> you know, way four or five years ago and, you know, doing what I thought as best I could to take care of his needs like that. And then it, and, and then it just continued like that. It's like when people, you know, say, oh, you've got this, you know, um, this terrific uh, talent, you know, you're putting together things, you know, with your design so cleverly, you know, taking these elements, you're taking typography and letter forms and, and ph- photographs and, and illustrations and you're putting them all together. Uh, you know, you should try being a, a collage artist or, you know, you can, you know, you do these drawings, you know, you should, you know, take that into the painting or mm-hmm. whatever. And I'm pretty much like, uh, uh, well, yeah, what, uh, yeah, give me, uh, I, I can do that. Uh, uh, give me the assignment. What, you know, <laughs> what it is, what kind of collage, <laughs> you know, what, what are the parameters and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, I, I feel, um, you know, for me, those, those restrictions are, 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 are helpful and, and very gratifying to be able to, you know, come out on the other side and see, you know, that, you know, here I've gone and, you know, made this, um, uh, design that really works or I've designed these classes that really works or I write these, uh, articles for print magazine that, you know, really communicate, you know, or I see, you know, the results of, you know, how my my brother and my son, you know, have grown up. And, you know, they're, you know, they're great in themselves. I, you know, contributed, you know, a little of what I could. But, you know, occasionally I can see, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> there I am <laughs> in 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 my brother and, and my son. I mean, it's just so gratifying. And uh, so, yeah, again, it, it kind of uh, – uh, if there's a mantra <laughs> to this uh, to this talk, I guess it's uh, it's all connected. <laughs> Everything I'm saying uh, to you is tied in with something else I'm saying to you, which is tied oh. in with the with the universe, man. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, far out. Oh, okay. Now I'm now I'm flying out in the universe. Uh, bring me back, Whitney. Ask me a question. <laughs> it gets me back on the ground again. <laughs> well. My parents, um, they're still wondering where the heck I came from. I mean, they're like, I'm not like me. She's not like you. Uh, is this the right girl? Well, she kind of has your eyes. And she kind of has your hair. And she kind of has our my great-grandmother's note. Well, my grandmother, who I kind of look like my great-great-grandmother a little bit. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I guess biologically I'm mid-child, but they're just like, uh, okay. No, I'm just joking. Love you, Mom and Dad. But – uh, anyway. <laughs> no, I was the problem child. Moving on. Um, oh. <laughs> that's hoping to talk about a tangent and another can of worms. But moving forward, so you became a photographer and you graphic designer. Tell yep. us more about the other cool things you have done in your career. <laughs> like you got to work on the Johnny Cash show. Well, or you got to take the publicity photos for it. I mean, can you at least tell right. me how – June Carter and Johnny Cash were because I'm a huge fan. Oh, uh, are you really? Actually, uh, uh, for me, I was uh, at the at the time I was I was really more impressed with Carl Perkins, who was like playing, you know, as a regular, but in the in the background. And this is we're talking about the Ryman Auditorium, you know, the original the Grand Old Opry. So that was mm-hmm. uh, that was the territory of our machine. But 
you know, he himself uh, was pretty good. Cool. Uh, June wasn't around that much at the time because uh, June uh, w- had just given birth to uh, to John Jr. I mean, she, uh-huh. she would come on the set, uh, but it wasn't so much to perform as just to you know to be with her husband. And and so I would see her, and you know, she'd be she'd be cradling uh, John Jr. in in her arms. Holy cow. It was very, it was very, you know, it was very tender. And I just kind of you know. Um, watched uh, and admired from from a distance, but uh, you know the uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, Johnny himself, uh, you know he was he you know he was enough down to earth where uh, you know you can imagine some shows. I mean, here he is, you know, the star of the show, you know, and this is we're you know we're talking about uh, 1970, and you know he's been through a lot to get to get where he is, uh-huh. and you, you know yet he still had that that down to earth uh, grounding. It's it's like you know, myself and the other, you know, hired help part of the crew, uh, you know, they weren't something other to him. You know, he was, uh-huh. you know, he could be as friendly to uh, uh, to me as he was to, you know, guest star. I mean, not as friendly. I mean, <laughs> it's more like, say, when, you know, Dennis Hopper was a guest on his show, you know, he'd be he'd be talking with, uh, uh, <laughs> he'd be talking with Dennis about, uh, you know, hey, so, uh how about like after the show, uh, you, you come up to uh, uh, my place. I had this spa. We can, you know, re- relax. You know, have, have a little weed. You know, that that sort of thing. And <laughs> and so, um, um, yeah, this is of course off the record, right? Not, luckily, you're not recording any of this. No, that, that, that's okay. I'm I'm fine with that. <laughs> but it was like, you know, this was, you know, this was just basically, you know, him being a guy. So uh, yeah, if you. Um, uh, yeah, to admire to admire him as a performer. Uh, for me, I was also admiring him, you know, a, a, as a as a person on a on a very uh, human level. And so, mm-hmm. um, uh, but now my um, my celebrities are are people in the. Uh, uh, I, I mean, you know, there there were other um, are uh, you know people in music that that I knew back then but you know mm-hmm. just kind of you know keep it a, a link to um the the uh, art and design and comics and uh, animation aspect now the celebrities I meet are uh are people in the design world in the comics and and in animation world and it was it was one of those things where you know, I just started writing. Uh, I, I was writing for the Comics Journal back in the, um, wow. in the late ni- 1980s. And, oh, that's uh, the dark ages, dude! Wow. <laughs> I know. Well, uh, uh, and and it was uh, and it was the the, the writing there that uh, got me uh, to uh, you know, and I would you know say writing about Spiegelman and like you know the people that I knew uh back then and um and then there was and then uh print magazine which you know print uh goes back to like 1940 which is when they started publishing it's one of those really uh uh landmark uh graphic design magazines that has mm-hmm. you know such 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 a history which uh unfortunately it just uh Recently had to fold as a magazine and now only exists in uh, online form. Which yeah. yes, that's that, yes, that's right. Print uh, no longer has a print version, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, but you know, so I'm still writing for them. And and part of why I uh, started uh, uh, 
uh, writing about uh, comics and uh, and design was you know just because I was interested in finding out more. It was it was one of those things where uh, I, I guess in its way it was me giving myself an assignment because I've always had the freedom to write whatever I want. So for me it was like okay, what do I want to find out? Uh, about these people, these, uh, you know, these comics uh, artists and animation uh, people that I know. And now I have an excuse to call them up, you know, because it's like, hey, I want to do an interview uh, with you, you know. <laughs> hey, you know, I want to go to Industrial uh, Light and Magic after Terminator 2 had just come out because I oh, want to wow. interview, you know, the people that, you know, created that, that you know, where uh, that scene where, you know, Roger – uh, uh, Robert Patrick uh, takes on this like liquid mercury form getting out of the hospital and so I get to you know go up and 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 see the guy you know that was that, that had that you know led the, the the skills for for doing that stuff you know the wireframe modeling and the rest of it and it was like they were already they were working on I couldn't talk about it at the time but they were showing me uh, stuff from what became Jurassic Park it was like this isn't oh, coming geez. out for like five this isn't coming out for five years, but, you know, and so you can't mention any specifics, but it's like the stuff you saw on T2, that's, that's nothing compared with what we can do now with, uh, with the technology we have now. So, you know, it just, uh, things like that, you know, not, you know, these are, these are not just celebrities, but these are people that, that, you know, again are, uh, you know, in the trenches, they're, they're doing the work and, and the rest of it. So, and it's like, you know, now I've, uh, no a, a gazillion people it was funny my my class last night somebody uh you know because i i was talking about all the guest speakers that i uh, that i'm going to be having this semester and one guy just raised his hand and he was like do you know all these people and i'm like well yeah you know i i i find out about them i i talk with them and and things like that and you know they come for you know uh they you know they they need to be acquaintances of mine just to it's, it's, you know <laughs> at least to be able to get a you know a free dinner out of it because it's not you know like I got you know a budget of a gazillion dollars to bring uh, people in I, I you know it, it's like um, you know I go and ask uh, Whitney you know you, you, yeah the stuff you did in your book is terrific I want oh, you know, I'd love you. to have you share it to 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 my class for and and you were like yes and and. You know, just that alone, I, you know, I, you know, felt honored and privileged. And then, you know, then I said, well, and let me take you to before that. You know, that yeah, it was great. Oh, I, yeah, I think, or I think, we, oh, we wound up doing it afterwards. Yeah, yeah, okay. were, yeah oh, but uh, yeah, <laughs> still in all, we had a couple of other people joining us, the ones that are making the, uh, the Reidinger film. So uh -huh. that was, that was great. That was cool. And so, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, you know, people who want to do this stuff for free, and then you know, I just uh, uh, offered to to give them. But yeah, it's it's you know wonderful to be able to have uh, you know animators like you know Floyd Norman, you know oh, yeah. Floyd Norman, a Disney legend, you know, in his, you know in his mid eighties, and oh yeah, Floyd and I are like yeah, yeah, actually yes, yeah, we you know uh, we we were hanging around for a while, and and. Uh, and again, you know, I wound up, uh, you know, uh, uh, taking him and, uh, and actually Drew Struzan, the guy who, you know, did all the Indiana Jones, all, all the, the Lucas Spielberg, uh, uh, posters, uh, mm -hmm. for the movies, uh, he, he wound up joining us. But yeah, Floyd and his wife and Drew and his wife, uh, 
Holy uh, cow. We all went, we all went to uh, <laughs> uh, uh, we all went to Houston's and you know for uh, uh, for dinner beforehand. And you know it's like he is just so super charming. His his wife is is delightful. If you haven't seen the um, uh, the biography of uh, the documentary on Floyd Norman. It's um, I believe it's still on Netflix. You just you know anybody mm-hmm. who hasn't seen it you, uh, just really has to do it. He is just so charming. You know, the, um, starting to work in uh, at Disney in the the mid 1950s, and you know just been in you know just all the important uh, films that uh, that animation that. Disney was putting out up until um, his forced retirement at, at age uh, 65. And now it's like he's been out of Disney uh, for, you know, close to 20 years, but he never wanted to retire. And so he still, you know, he still does cartoons. He, you know, and he comes and he, he hangs out at Disney. It's like his, his wife works at Disney and he drives her to and from work. Wow. When he drives her to work instead of just like going on his way, he just like comes in and hangs out. It's just like wonderful. He is, and the stories he has, you know, it's just like he did, uh, you know, he was able to do, uh, he had this like one hour set piece where he came in and he showed his slides and he slides and, you know, the, the, these are the things I worked on. And then it was like open to questions and I have like a three hour class. And some people, uh, you know, they wrap up and say 75, 90 minutes. And, and for him, it's like everybody was just so, you know, oh, my God, I got to, you know, people. And he he's charming. He has so many anecdotes. It's like he knew, he knows everybody in the animation business. And, you know, and he's got a gazillion stories. I mean, he's he's, he's really a gold mine. And, again, such a sweet, you know, endearing, humble, uh, generous person that uh, mm-hmm. I just can't well, say enough good about him. I oh. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, uh, thanks, Wendy. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> okay, so now you, you gotta, okay, Floyd Norman. I mean, you mentioned I think you knew him, so I might be, uh, tapping you like, uh, hey, uh, can you connect me with him? But, dude, this <laughs> is the part in the podcast where you gotta name drop some more for me just so I can be astounded <laughs> and go, wow, you're awesome. Do some more, do some more. Just impress me. Oh jeez. Uh oh well uh Read your syllabus for the semester. How about that? Read your syllabus. <laughs> Who are you getting this year? Comics, uh, animation, well, uh, design. Okay. Uh um okay, well, okay, uh we'll we'll start with animation. Uh, uh-huh. I've got uh uh two animation guest speaker classes. Uh uh one of them is uh Bob Kurtz. Uh, that's, uh, he's a, um, a Peabody award winning uh, animation director and, you know, writer designer. And, and he really, he's been around long enough that, you know, he can speak to history because, you know, he, he has, I mean, uh, Kurtz and Friends is his animation studio. So if you, mm-hmm. you know, look up K-U-R-T-Z and Friends, uh, you'll find mm-hmm. out about him on the internet. But, you know, he's worked for Walt Disney. Oh, he's, wow, he's worked yeah. for Universal Studios, MGM, Sony. Uh, Columbia, Warner Bros., you know, just like, uh, all those people. And, uh, and so he's going to be coming in and, you know, and, and he's, you know, pretty much, you know, again, these are people that I, you know, uh, meet socially at, you know, whatever mm-hmm. Comic Cons or parties or things like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, there, there was a, um, uh, a, a pre, um, th- there was a, um, 
a pre-Oscar uh, party in, in my neighborhood where, like, people uh, uh, who were, you know, who were either have, either were up, uh, nominated for uh, animated uh, films or were, mm-hmm. uh, or had been in the past, you know, they're just kind of, everybody shows up and, and hangs around. You know, of course, Jerry Beck uh, was. Oh, uh, I know Jerry, there. yeah. Yeah, Jerry. Uh, uh, Jerry, you know, another, another speaker at my house. So, so with Bob, he was like, you know, he, he's again, a great, you know, um, friendly, open, uh, talkative guy. And, uh, and, and I say, you know, Hey, you know, I had this class. Would you like to? And he was like, yeah, sure. What do you want me to talk about? And I, and, uh, and he's like, I can talk about anything. <laughs> and so, so we, you know, just got, to, got around to kicking out, out around ideas. And I said, okay. Uh, here's what I want you to talk. What influenced you? What was really strong in, in your formative years? And and he said, UPA. And I said, that's it. Oh. I want you to come in and give your presentation on UPA Studios, which you know, again, this is related to the 1950s, and and you know, they were revolutionaries certainly uh, in in their time. So he's going to come and uh, and talk about that. And then uh, also, I've got a bunch of uh, uh, well, it's actually three other people from uh, the animation uh, world: uh, Willie Ito, Tony Benedict, and Jerry Eisenberg. Uh, who mm-hmm. again, you know, that's like, you know, uh, they've been uh, guys who, you know, ha- who have quite a uh, <laughs> uh, quite a long history together, and they, you know, they, uh, you know, they're also it's like, you know, Disney, Warner Brothers, uh, Hanna Barbera, just like, you know, all. <laughs> all that wonderful uh, stuff they've been they've been part of that and so there mm-hmm. um you know so there are uh <laughs> there are three more uh <laughs> names names to drop i mean uh you uh you know, they, they were they yeah they were the uh i mean basically they all started out they they met at uh you know the the golden days of hanna barbera i mean there was this brief <laughs> There was this brief moment in time when Hanna Barbera actually put out good stuff. <laughs> no. What do you mean? Uh, Hanna Barbera's always done. Uh, well, I, I, mean, I know. I know. Some, some, sometimes better, better than I mean, you know, we're talking about like you know the early '60s. You know, just uh, yeah. like the, you know the creations of Huckleberry Hound, Yogi Bear, Top Cat, Flintstones, Jetsons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. And you know they 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 got their their start on that, so that's their connection. And then you know, of course, they. You know they're they're just uh, uh, cartoon wizards. They've been you know since 1960. They've they've known each other, and so they've mm-hmm. uh, so the three of them are are uh, are uh, coming to class. And uh, so then there's three. Um, mm-hmm. So then there's there are those two uh, uh, sets of presentations, and mm-hmm. then uh, and then so there's because uh, it's history of comics and animation. So I'm doing mm-hmm. like, uh, two two guest speaker. Uh, animation events and two uh, guest speaker uh, comics events. And mm-hmm. uh, the first one, who I just actually had uh, last Monday, a uh, big, big hit, uh, mm-hmm. is uh, a guy named Howard Chaikin. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Howard Chaikin is uh, someone he uh, – uh, people are big fans of his because it's like in uh, – he started out – he. Uh, he, his first recognition was was back in the 1970s when Star Wars uh, came mm-hmm. out, and he did the first uh, 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 comic book versions of uh, Star Wars uh, oh, for that. And wow. it was like, 
and he was, you know, one of the, I mean, uh, and, and again, you know, just to be honest, it's like, you know, back then he was just starting and it's not, you know, uh, not his best stuff. And, you know, he even admits it's like if it's work for hire, you know, he just knocks the stuff out and, you know, and, and he's not proud of it and justifiably so. It's not that great. But what he, what he does do when he gets into his own things is just fantastic. It's like, uh, probably most famous for coming up with the cre- uh, creation of the character American Flag. And that's, uh, F-L-A-G-G, which is a, uh, Reuben Flag, which is a, um, uh, uh, this, uh, Jewish action adventure hero, uh, <laughs> from, from Mars. In a, you know, so it's, it's, it's sci-fi, you know, and he looks just, you know, pretty much like, uh, like, like most of, um, uh, like, like most of, um, uh, Howard's uh, heroes look like. It was actually, oh, and yeah, just to backtrack for a second, the reason that Lucas, uh, got him, got Howard the gig was because he had been, uh, Howard had been drawing, uh, comics before, you know, again, his own characters. And there was one, uh, one cartoon character, uh, called Cody Starbuck that Lucas uh, told Howard it was like a lot of Hans, Han Solo is based on the the Cody Car- Starbuck character that you created. So it was like, you know, so this was, so, you know, uh, it was like, you know, uh, Chaykin did uh, Cody Starbuck, who Lucas turned into uh, Han Solo, and then it was like, okay, Howard did the comic and that sort of thing. So, uh, but then American flag, it's, it's just like a very, you know, funny, uh, you know, Howard's just, you know, wonderfully cynical and it's got this kind of, uh, humor, you know, again, uh, uh, Kurtzman and, uh, influenced, uh, character. It's, it's like, it's, you know, he's an action hero, but it's very funny. It's like, uh, uh, his, uh, uh, American flag sidekick is, is a cat, um, excuse me, is a cat, uh, named Raul. And the cat, the cat talks, but to, you know, the, the, uh, but Howard never bothers explaining why. It's just like, you know, the two of them are walking around and, you know, uh, and, and Ruben Flagg and, and Raul the cat are just engaged in conversation. So, uh, and, uh, so he, he's done that and he's done other stuff. His comics have been, uh, uh, have been censored. I did, I, I oh, that's awesome. Of, I've written a couple of, uh, stories, uh, uh, again, this is like print magazine, so you can, you can kind of like go on printmag.com, you know, or whatever, you can Google Howard Chaykin, Michael Dooley, uh, and that should get you to some of the articles. Because one of the pieces that I write about, I, I love writing about just like every, uh, every year that Band Comics Week, uh, comes around, I have to write something, uh, on it. In fact, I, uh, uh, I, I just finished one, which should uh, run this week, which was uh, uh, the title of it is um, uh, basically it was about the time that the United States uh, Army uh, banned a war comic book. And but again, getting off on a um, <laughs> getting off on a on a uh, tangent to get back to Howard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, you look at his uh, uh, his work. He did this comic. Um, uh, Called um, uh, Black Kiss, and it was banned in uh, Canada. It was banned in the UK. Um, but you know, again, the, the whole story it, it, it's up there. So, so he's the first of the two speakers I'm, I'm having this semester. The second of the uh, two uh, speakers 
is a um a documentary filmmaker who oh, wow. uh, who did a um um a feature film which is currently making the uh um uh the the film uh, festival circuits on um a uh, a woman called Lily Renee and um you know she's someone who uh um did did I I think I do with Trina Robbins right uh, you know Trina Robbins. Awesome. Oh, I guess I didn't. Anyway, uh, any, anyway, so tr- uh, uh, Trina Robbins is uh, uh, well. You, you you know about uh, you know about Trina, so you know she's the uh, you know she is just you know uh, the yeah. person when it comes to uh, you know um, uh, women and in, in, in comics history, and she's someone that. Um, uh, Lily Renee is someone that, that she's uh, that she's written about, and and Lily Renee is someone, you know, also in my class who I talk about uh, quite a bit. I have this, you know, this whole big section of uh, pioneering uh, women in comics, you know, as well as you know <laughs> a lot of the pioneering women in animation. And Lily Renee, uh, she was also drawing action adventure um, uh, hero uh, heroes, female heroes. In fact, she was the uh, she was the, the First one who came up w- uh, with a Latina uh, action adventure hero, uh, Senorita Rita, and you know she's just this interesting person. She's still alive. She's you know we're, we're talking about the 1940s. We're talking about World War II. You know we're talking about uh, you know how we mentioned World War II. It's like okay, all the men are going away in service, so the women need to come in and and um, and and fill the jobs. It's you know she was she was part of that. Uh, uh, you know, she, the World War II gave her uh, career a good uh, boost because she was doing uh, mm-hmm. these these wonderful uh, comic books, uh, comic book stories uh, uh, that uh, were you know were about these uh, these women heroes. And you know, her herself, you know, she's had a uh, interesting. You know, when she was a kid, she was a Holocaust survivor, and you know, so all this is covered in the um, in the uh, in the film, and so the wait, uh, is this the person that uh, Neil Adams he wrote about her, didn't he? Or he did something uh, to help her? Because her uh, art wasn't it. At, I, I know I keep uh, interrupting you, but wasn't no. her art at one uh, after the camps were liberated? They found some of her drawings in the concentration camp, and then she sued the concentration camp, whoever took over it, to turn it into a historical marker and, you know, historical site, and she goes, these are mine. I want them back. And then she won her suit. Wow. Uh, this, this I didn't know about. I said, you know, well, you know, she was, uh, uh, let's see, fairly, I mean, she's still alive. I think she's, well, what's her name? Theater. I mean, can you spell her name? Uh, okay. Uh, Lily is L-A-L-Y, uh, and Renee is R-E-N-E-E. Yeah, I and, think I know her. And so, yeah, I, I'm interested in, in who that uh, the person that uh, Neil. I, I mean, you know, she was very young. I mean, she was a kid uh, at the. Uh, uh, okay, I don't think this is at, her. At the, yeah, I mean, you know, young enough to be, you know, working during World, World War II, but uh, but in any event, uh, yeah. So uh, so the you know the director went and and. Interviewed her. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. saw her the, the the first time I met her was a couple of years ago at the um, 
uh, at San Diego Comic Con. I mean, you know, these are the way, you know, some of the ways I, I meet people. It's like, you know, there was, there was Trina and Lily sitting next to each other. And it wow. was like, you know, and, and so you just, you know, you just start talking with, uh, with, with these people. And so, uh, uh, yeah. And, oh, well, well, Trina, I, I, I've, uh, I've, I've known for, you know, quite a while. I just admire Lucky. what she does so much. I know. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so, um, and, and she's talking about, you know, she lives up in the Bay Area, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we talk about, <laughs> we, <laughs> we, uh, yeah, you know, that, that place where, you know, the Fillmore West was, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, and, and, you know, she was, you know, so much a, you know, vital part of that, of that hippie culture. And, you know, she was also, I mean, she's one of the other, you know, uh, uh, under, uh, recognized, uh, underground comics, uh, artists who just, like, is, you know, woefully, uh, un, uh, acknowledged and, 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 uh, unrespected for the, for the groundbreaking work that, that she does. And, you know, and, and she's still doing, uh, stuff with, you know, just her wonderful books. And so, uh, you know, she's, she's, you know, as soon as I started the, uh, the comics class, it was like, you know, we, we started talking about having her, uh, come down and speak to us. So that's gonna, uh, that, that's gonna happen at, at one point. She's on my, uh, yeah, <laughs> she's on my future guest speaker, uh, list. So, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's it for, um, for, for name dropping this, uh, semester. And, and, you know, then, then, then there are all those, uh, I mean, I've been writing for print since, what, 1990, 1991. Wow. And, uh, oh. so I've, you know, just written a, Ton of stuff for them back in their their print days and and uh, and now you uh, and now you can go online. It, it, it's like I've got uh, it's probably surpassed uh, 200 uh, articles uh, pieces that I've done online. So again, you know, going to my uh, author page, you know, it, it 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 shows these articles ten at a time. So it's like you know you can wow. go back about 20 pages finding all the all the. Uh, that I, stuff that I've uh, done, the articles I've written about various other people. So, oh, it's uh, with F and W Media. That is amazing. F and W, yes. Uh, uh, and yeah, they How um, uh, Magazine. Anyway, it's uh, yeah, just but you know, again, they're they are they're going the way of. It would have been nice if since they started in 1940 that they that they made it to uh, 2040, but alas. And, you know, but still they've, you know, they've got such a, you know, such a collection of, you know, they were, um, Max Gaines in 1942, like, you know, just two years after, uh, Prince started publishing, wrote the first serious article about, uh, comics. You know, this is, uh, really? Max, Max Gaines, you know, the father of, uh, <laughs> you know, Bill Gaines, EC Comics, uh, you know, we're back to, to that again, Mad, Mad Magazine, and he was, he would basically do this, you know, it's a really substantial article. He actually did a couple of them. The first one was, you know, going back to, you know, the, the, the cave paintings, which is, you know, kind of where you start, and, you know, various other, um, aspects of that early comics history that you can trace and just, you know, bringing it up, up, up to the present. It was like, uh, print and, and Max were, uh, were pioneers in, you know, hey, let's take comics, you know, serious, Seriously, and now there are academic studies all uh, over the over the place, and uh, so, and you know, I even to um, 
suggested when I first heard the news that uh, that print was going to close. It was one of those things where you, you can't tell anybody until it's out. So well, I, I knew for quite yeah. a while. But I, one of the things I suggested was, you know, you've got so much material here. It's like don't go out of the printing itself business. You've got, you know, you've got, you know, the whatever it is, 85 years of 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 publishing to draw from. You could put out themed books. It's like, you know, here's print magazines, books that they've written on comics. Here's print magazines that they've written on uh, movie posters and, you know, just on and on. You know, they, they've mm-hmm. got that, that backlog. So, I'm, yeah. I, 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 uh, and, and surprisingly, it was like, oh, yeah, I didn't think of that. So, uh, so I'm yeah. hoping that may happen. It reminds me of when the Comics Buyer's Guide went out. I mean, Sadly, they didn't um, maintain an online presence, but I'm just, mm. I just, I was writing for them the last two years before they closed, and, uh, man, I, oh. I wish they were still around, honestly. Yeah, t- t- tell me what you wrote for them. Reviews, and I uh, wrote uh, two little, little, little kids, and I think I wrote two featured articles for them, too. Oh. I'll send I'll send you copies of those. Would you please? Oh, I I love that. Yes, thank you. Yeah. And, oh yeah. gosh. Uh, I mean, again, I you know I know uh, like uh, d- uh, other uh, designers, uh, a- animators, comics people, you know, who I've I've uh, written about. Uh, so um, and uh, and it's just you know it's just wonderful. No, I mean it's it's. The whole writing gig, I mean, it, it pays, uh, you know, bare, you know, bare, barely net recognizable, uh, you know, bare, barely a, a, a blip on my, uh, on my W2. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, but still in all, it's like now I have, <laughs> I have the power, you know, to, to call up anybody I'm interested in and be able to say, you know, hey, you know, I, I'd, I'd really like to find out more about, uh, what you do. Uh, mm-hmm. cause I can, you know, I can take it anywhere. You know, I, I do, uh, interviews, I do reviews, I do feature stories. You know, again, it's, it's pretty much, uh, whatever I'm interested in. And it's, um, for me, it's a long process. It's one of those things that, uh, I put together, you know, I've, I've never taken any, uh, classes in being a teacher but I teach I never took any classes in uh writing but I write and it's pretty mm-hmm. much for me it's pretty much uh me taking the things I learned at Pratt the things I took at school it was like a, it was a modernist education and back then design modernism was you know if you know how to design the basics you know how to design anything so when I, I was just you know like looking at it as my career it's like you know when you know, I, I got approached to, yeah, uh, to, to write. I said, well, you know, I don't know how to write, but I bet I can, you know, <laughs> figure out a way to design a way for myself to write. And, you know, same thing with teaching. Okay, let's design a syllabus and a rubric and that sort of thing. So, and, um, you know, it, it just kind of springs off, uh, from, from there. So, um. Well, I mean, it's kind of like a lot of how, I mean, I'm going to bring up an example. You just reminded me of one of my favorite examples of, you know, winging it. Jim Henson, he wanted to get into show business, and he was trying to figure out how, and then he saw that a local uh, TV station was advertising, we need some puppets. And so he was like, well, I can do some puppets. So he came up with some two cowboys and another 
I think two cowboys and some other puppets. I'll have to look at my resources for that. And then they, they did it. And, you know, history was made. Hmm. There you, know, you go. Mean it. Wow. Make it till you make it, they say, or razzle-dazzle them and they never ask why. <laughs> Uh, well, let's see. Okay, Jim Henson, uh, one degree of separation. Uh, there's oh. this, uh, comics, uh, comics guy, you know, who, uh, who, uh, worked, uh, for Henson and, and knew Henson, uh, uh, guy by the name of Craig Yo, who, you know, so there's a, there's an animation connection. Most of, mostly it's, it's comics. You know, he does, uh, he's a cartoonist, uh, himself and he, and he's written extensively and, uh, given lectures, uh, about, uh, comics, so uh, and uh, he might be a good one to interview for a, a future uh, podcast. He mm-hmm. um, uh, so anyway, um, anyway, so that's Craig, Craig Y O E Yo, and and I guess you can, yeah, you, uh, in in the final cut, you can trim out all this networking, but you know, again, <laughs> and, you know, this, this this goes, you know, again to you know, anytime you know, I uh, I mean, the people I know are are. Uh, are good people in the sense that, you know, I like to talk with them. It's like, you know, I, there, there have been some, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> what, what's a polite term for it? There are some, there are some people who, uh, you know, who just don't <laughs> live up to what you hope they would be. And I just basically don't hang around with them, but yeah, just about all the, the, the people I know are, uh, uh, are good, you know, smart people with a lot to, uh, uh, to, to contribute so yeah <laughs> well yeah and, I, and i'm grateful that and i'm very grateful that we're still uh that you and i are still keeping connection i hope it uh i hope it continues on because you uh yeah, you definitely have a lot to offer and i want to be uh kept up to date on on your future project well um i'm actually writing a book about the history of nickelodeon right now um and not like the history of the entire network I'm focusing um I'll leave that to my friend Matthew Clickstein. He's okay. uh he wrote the definitive history called Slime and I am using his wonderful work as a foundation for mine because he did he did the hard stuff cuz he tracked everyone down but I'm writing about the history of the golden age of Nickelodeon animation. So we're talking 1979 to 2005 when the studio closed down in well not the Nickelodeon studios closed down in Florida. So that's what I'm categorizing as the golden age. Oh, okay. So so you're connected with him. You're able to, you and he are able to exchange information. Oh, yeah, information he's a great guy. Oh, yeah, uh, great wonderful. guy. Go ahead. Glad yeah, to hear like him. Ah, and, he wrote, uh, yeah, he just wrote a great book about the history of the Simpsons. It's fantastic. Um, wow. Having gone through that, the whole first, I mean, it, it, the whole experience of, uh, a lot of book was your first, right? It was. Not so, the first one I ever wrote, but the first one I ever got published. Got published, yeah. And, uh, so do you find, are there, uh, are there things about the, um, the process of having written that book that, uh, that you find informed this, this next book that you're working on that, you know, things you've learned that have proven helpful that have made it easier for you to start work on this other book? Um, yeah, basically I've learned that, you know, writing nonfiction books, people are a lot more willing to publish them than they are fiction, and it's a lot, you know, 
the thing about nonfiction writing is, as, as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of blowhards in this industry. <laughs> and the thing is, is if you want your nonfiction book to be read, because I've read so many that are just so blah, 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 smart, 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 blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, right. you're so boring. And really, yeah. when people want to read, I mean, what really gets people to read your book is to make it entertaining. So when my editor at McFarlane, when I asked her how it was editing my book, she goes, oh, yeah, yours was actually really simple because I actually enjoyed reading it. <laughs> oh, yes, the, yeah, the academic publishers. That, yeah. yeah that it can be a snooze fest and a task well, getting through some of those uh, – yeah, some of those scholarly uh, uh, books and articles. Oof. Yeah. So, so what I've uh, done is I'm putting a sort of information in my reflections of, you know, Nick, growing up with Nickelodeon. And, like, there's this part where I found uh-huh. out that Nickelodeon – example is that I found out, like, a Pinwheel. Pinwheel was really the first programming program that Nickelodeon had. It was also the, uh-huh. the name of the network when before it became Nickelodeon. And in a footnote, I mentioned, you know, I've had the pinwheel theme song stuck in my head since 1980-whatever. 19, and, no, it's true. I, I still, even more so when I'm writing the book, I just go, da, 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 da. I'm like, ah, oh, crap, it's the pinwheel song again. And I wrote, I'll be singing that on my deathbed. And then also, <laughs> I know, right? Nickelodeon also in the early days they had a mime on TV. I'm not joking. A mime to just, you know, between shows. And I'm looking at myself and I'm like, a mime? And a mime? I mean, this is like going back to vaudeville. Because you don't put mimes on TV anymore unless you're making fun of them. And don't get me wrong if you're a mime and you're listening to this. However, you have to admit, I'm right. And so, it's, it's, so I make fun of the mime arts. And I'm like, Nickelodeon mime. And I think that's going to be a running gag throughout the book. It's more interesting than a mime. So, yeah, that's, that's that's, that, that was cute. You're, 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 uh, basically, what you were saying is, uh, if you're a mime, uh, I really don't want to hear from you. But uh, Pretty much. Okay, so. I, mean, I respect, <laughs> well, I respect yeah, clowns. No that, uh, oh, yeah. I Oh, oh, that's a great pun. That's a great pun. But, but, <laughs> but the uh, and it's and it's wonderful that that uh, on this one, yeah, you're taking it to the next level of being able to introduce the the, the personal. I mean, you know, just the uh, just the you know the, the conversational tone that you set up in your in your writing, and then, and it seems to now even be expanding. It is is yet another reason that the universe should be uh, grateful that uh, Whitney Grace is with us. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> all right, enough enough schmoozing, enough mutual admiration society. I imagine you know people right. <laughs> people are, are, are reaching. Yeah. So you maybe oh. and me. <laughs> like those okay. two gophers from those Warner Brother cartoons who are masquerading as uh, homosexual men, but like, oh no, after you, oh you're such a good thing, ah, you know. <laughs> oh, I love those gophers. Right, yeah, which is you know. Dating back to Alphonse and Gaston, like an early oh, comic geez. strip from the uh, from the turn of the century. So uh, yeah, after you, my dear Alphonse. Oh, after you. Oh, no, no. So, Gaston, which and again probably goes back to you know to vaudeville. I'm sure it does because that's you know vaudeville. Yeah, it was so much a part of 
yeah, I mean, you know, you you have these, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> Disney did, you know, their uh, share of, uh, you know, did a couple of uh, racist cartoons that they don't show <laughs> a lot. I, I mean, you know, and even one with, uh, you know, which really sounds like taking absurdity to a, to a heightened level, actually having uh, Mickey Mouse uh, to perform, get in black face to perform oh, Uncle yeah. Tom's Cabin. So if I and you what and uh, yeah and that whole that whole minstrelry, uh, you know the heritage of so much of you know the the uh, racist uh, comics and animations it was just you know so much taken for for granted and, and you know even in movies I mean you know have uh, you have Bing Crosby Holiday Inn you know, get, oh, you know performing in blackface oh yeah I mean that's I mean it's horrible. It's horrible, mm. but at the same time, it's, and I'm not saying this, dear listeners, as any sort of, you know, of okaying this art. It was the norm back then. It's wrong, 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 but I'm just saying it is a good historical example of how commonplace it was and how socially acceptable it was back in the day not now it is bad now but it's it's just amazing common this, it was yeah this this is something that uh again it's it's going to seem like a lot happened in my class last night but one of the things that we were one of the things we were talking about uh uh last night was uh a recent uh, uh editorial cartoon that was done in Australia on the uh on the Serena Williams affair uh, mm-hmm. her, 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 uh, you, you know about this? The, uh, yeah, the, I heard about it. Her, yeah, c- uh, considered her, you know, her, her, her baby-like uh, temper tantrum, and, and so oh, this, yeah. this guy uh, did this, uh, did this caricature, and you know, and we got to talk about, you know, character is meant to be uh, exaggeration, and uh, and so, and I and I played the, you know, basically the interview uh, from the uh, from the editorial cartoonist who was like. Uh, you know, I didn't intend this uh, to to be racist, uh, but you know, there it is, and uh, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I didn't mean any harm by it, that and and so uh, therefore, you know, but then again, and and so it, this was like open to classroom discussion, and and you know, and what people came up with was, yeah, what you were saying is like, you know, keep in mind, you know, all the you know all the grotesque caricatures that this that this cartoon is pretty much uh, closely. Uh, you know that this particular character caricature uh, closely resembles, and and you know, and it was like you know we we tried to do, you know, and of course you know me uh, you know uh, <laughs> uh, putting on my uh, <laughs> Socratic hat, and it's kind of you know whatever you're for, I'm against, and and it's mm-hmm. and then, you know and asking those oh, but what about you know questions to look at it anyway uh long short of the conversation was that it wound up that the last person who spoke said, you know, having listened to the guy uh uh being interviewed and having you know studied and analyzed um you know the cartoons uh side by side um with the uh with the pictures of uh, uh of williams and her opponent um basically the uh this one person said was you know yes, it was wrong. Uh, because of of this heritage, but I don't, I, you know, I believe the cartoonist when he said he meant no harm, and 
and that, you know, he just, you know, he just wasn't hip enough. He just wasn't aware. And so, you know, I thought that that was a good point to uh, to end on because basically what he was saying was uh, that the cartoonist was naive. And, mm-hmm. and what's really important is the design history of comics and animation, mm-hmm. which is the course I teach. And so I said, yeah, you know, and he said, I, you know, I agree. And I was like, okay, no argument. We got that settled. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, so you know, again, and yeah, and, and so I showed, yeah, that, that, that Mickey Mouse, uh, uh, cartoon and, uh, I mean, not all of it because, I mean, some of these you just can't, you know, it's like taking in small doses and, oh, yeah. you know, even, yeah, that, you know, I, I could, you know, there was a Fleischer Brothers, uh, Betty Boop, uh, cartoon mm-hmm. that I could only show just like one minute of it and even that was painful. <sighs> well, and they'll pretty, well, and then, in hindsight, at the same time, you have that, uh, that, and I'm saying fantastic cartoon, Coal Black and the Seven Dwarfs. Yep. Um, but the thing is, is those animators who made it, yes, I'm not going to lie, it was the Warner Brothers, I believe. What they did is they had Blackstons and black people who were just, they, Talk to these people. They went to these jazz clubs. They talked to these people who helped influence the cartoon, and the black population at that time loved it because mm. it was them, and it was done. Yes, it was done respectfully yet disrespectfully at the same time because it played into much caricatures and other stuff like that. But at the same time, black audiences at that time loved it. Mm. I know it's wrong for me. To, it might sound like it's wrong for me to say that, but it's the truth. I have read about it. And, yeah. Yeah. But and, and and you know it was a good you know it was a good basis for a conference you know just starting up a conversation about caricature because it's like you know political cartoons caricatures are meant to go uh, for the grotesque. It's like you know if you're you know if you're just doing a flattering portrait of that person, then you know whatever you need to be you know, whatever, out on uh, Venice Beach with your easel and, you know, charging, you know, $20 for a charcoal sketch of, you know, passersby. You know, it, it's like, you know, but what what political cartoons are, you know, meant to do in general was, you know, to, to, to reveal the grotesque, you know, the internal grotesque externally, you know, uh-huh. which is why I started out the talk with uh, a whole bunch of uh, uh, cartoons of, uh, our, our president, which, you know, again, it was like, you know, here's, here's a grotesque caricature of, you know, <laughs> you know, what is it? Yeah. Who is essentially a, a white man. And it's like, you know, and this is what, you know, these are the things that are being made fun of. These are, the, these are what are, are being, you know, exaggerated for the, you know, to the point of, of ridicule. Yes, you're meant to ridicule, but then, you know, you have to be, uh, you know, okay, was Serena Williams actually throwing a tantrum tantrum, temper tantrum? Was she, like, not, you know, not listening to uh, the judges when they were saying, you know, come on, I've, you know, I, we keep warning you when you keep doing this, it's like, stop it. And, 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 and you know, then, then she just had, you know, the, this, this, uh, this meltdown and, you know, it, it, uh, so, you know, again, whether you agree or not, 
yeah, it, the cartoon was expressing a point of view, but again, you know, to, to be sensitive, you know, of, of the, you know, history and heritage, uh, that, that sort of thing. So, yeah. Oh, you're absolutely right. Well, you know, Michael, we, this is heading on two hours and this is a fantastic thing, but <laughs> no. I think we're going to have to bring it down to an end and I'm going to have to come get you back on the show and we can just shoot the breeze there. But I'm going to ask you the last question. Okay. I'm ask everyone who comes on the Tune and Talk podcast. And it is a fantastic question. It's, do you, Mr. Michael Dooley, have anything to declare? Uh, I, I, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I declare, uh, well, uh, okay, well, I, my, uh, my earlier, uh, declaration, uh, was it's all connected and, but, you know, I guess uh, another uh, declaration, if I have to come up with a, with a new one, is that, um, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's like so much to, um, uh, to laugh about. And, you know, and, and I realize it, it, it's pretty much anything. And again, this is, you know, this kind of bringing it around full circle to, to Harvey Kurtzman, that whole, you know, sense of absurdity that uh, he and so many other of the uh, of the uh, comics artists and the animators that that I admire so much is just you know meant to to pull you know put out that that absurdity. It's kind of you know the absurdity of 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 life. You know, one of the uh, you know one of the big declarations. Uh, uh, that uh, that kind of encompass anything. It's kind of like an all-purpose. You can use this at any time. Declaration. You know, it, it just even you know goes back to a folk tale about you know the king who uh, assigned uh, you know his um, you know his wisest thinker to to come up with uh, something that he could say that would be correct at all times. And uh, basically, you know, the wise man came back and 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 the words that he came up with were this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, and, you know, what, you know, what a great, um, uh, mortality thing. And, you know, which, you know, again, can, you know, can, can swing either way depending on, you know, which way you want to go. It's, it's like, this too shall pass. So, hey, let's make the most of it. It's like, just so much to see and learn. It's like, you know, teaching history. It's like, I, you know, whatever, 15 years ago, I, you know, ne- never even imagined doing it. Now I can't imagine not doing it because, it's like an ongoing process. There's never, there's, you can never stop learning it. And, and, but, you know, the, the humorous aspect of it and, and the kind of a, you know, for me, my perspective, my uh, declaration jumping off the, um, all things uh, must pass is something that I try to uh, keep in mind at every moment of my life is, um, it's all funny. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Especially from the armchair of history. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, and, and from life itself, it's like you know, you're doing all all this is you know, uh, all these things, uh, you know, uh, just you know, thinking about the you know, including teaching history, thinking about the future. But you know, <laughs> you know the the future has its uh, its limitations, and but you know, you can despair about it, but you know, I. I, I just can't do that because there's just not enough time in, in my life. You know, I, I just want to, you know, I just want to be able to laugh at it, laugh at myself, laugh at, 
laugh at uh, everything. So yeah. uh, is that what you meant by something to declare? I was, you know, I was taking it literally as a declaration. No, so. that's the beauty of the question. You can interpret it however you'd like. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's my uh, uh, declaration. And it's kind of an independence uh, declaration as well. So thank you for asking that. I, uh, You're welcome. <laughs> no one ever has, and I'm grateful that it uh, that you did, and I was able to, to put words to uh, something that I carry around me at all, with me at all times. So thanks so much. This has been such a delightful conversation, oh, Whitney. If I can, you. If I can, like, gush one last time. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for for uh for um <laughs> you know being patient with me as I got as I, I uh, you know I stepped into a fairy ring and I got you know sidetracked for a couple. <laughs> I literally oh yeah fairy ring. Uh, <laughs> yeah, fairy. I gotta gotta hear more about that. Definitely, be, we we'd be delightful to have more conversations. And again, whenever you're out here, you you know feel feel welcome. <laughs> So, welcome to the other side of the interview with Michael Dooley. I know that was a very long one, but I hope you caught on to just our joie de vivre speaking with each other, because frankly, that's one of the best conversations I had at that year up to that point. And when I was editing this, I was just like, man, this is so freaking fun. And I hope in this time of pandemic all over the world and Hearing something like that between two people who are in love with art, animation, and comic books, and just the potential of all of those mediums, that you see a bit of hope and are vicariously living with our joy and love of these mediums. So Michael Dooley, thank you for coming on the show, and don't worry, you will be coming on again in the future and prepare to maybe have a three-hour-long conversation. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I really don't think um, that his... I think, honestly, he was supposed to have lunch with his wife, but because he was talking with me at that time, I kind of delayed it, and I'm sorry. Sometimes I just do that with people because we have so much fun talking. Yeah, no shame. It makes me happy. And because happiness is a rare figure in my life, I grasp onto it whenever I can and hold on tight. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. So without further ado, that brings us to the end of another episode of Tune In Talk. I'm going to start posting these with more frequency as well as getting some of the backlog out and bringing up some of the archives again. So who knows? Maybe I can start earning advertising fees from some of this so that I can buy some dog treats from my production crew. And also pay for the dental cleanings. That's necessary when you have little dogs. So, without further ado, which I'm saying again, that brings us to an end of another episode of Tune and Talk. And, ladies and gentlemen, as LeVar Burton says, whenever we bring up Reading Rainbow... Not personally with him, but whenever you watch or ask him about it, he says, I'll see you next time. <laughs>